Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn life-changing lessons to live by, how to laugh and love your way to sustainable happiness. My first guest is Dr. David Levy. He is an award-winning professor of psychology at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, where he has been teaching since 1986. Professor Levy received his BA in theater arts from UCLA before earning two master's degrees, and his Ph.D. in psychology. Dr. Levy is often sought out by the media as a psychological consultant on current events and for insights into the mental health field. But most importantly in this moment, because we're only talking about this moment, he is the author of Life is a Four-Letter Word, Laughing and Learning Through 40 Life Lessons. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. It is really great to have you. Let's talk about the influence for this book. Where did the anecdotes and the slices of wisdom come from? Well, okay, so I, I can tell you a couple things. Uh, in psychology, the greatest influence, the, the book that influenced me the most was a book called Man's Search for Meaning by ah, Victor Frankl. I read yeah. it years ago, and it just changed my life. So for me, when I work with patients or I teach students, it's almost always about trying to find meaning. So I married that with these personal stories that I've been collecting throughout my life, starting at age six and taking me to age 60. And these little slices of life, each of which gives me and hopefully gives the reader a little nugget, some wisdom, some life lesson. And I try to make these stories entertaining and funny because to me, laughter is the great medicine. I agree with you. Man's Search for Meaning was one of the most influential books in my life. It was a, a textbook in my master's degree program in psychology yes. as well. Yeah, of course. That's right. Here's the thing that makes it so powerful to me, and that is people search for happiness. And Always. happiness to me is, <laughs> is elusive. Like it comes and goes. It's like trying to capture smoke. Yeah. But what I found is that if people can find meaning, and I don't mean grand stuff, in simple acts. When they find meaning, happiness follows meaning, not the other way around. So if people are finding meaning in good things or in troubling things, they're able to find happiness because it's meaningful. A life without meaning is just dreadful to me. So it's life is hard enough. We don't have to go out of our way to make it more negative. Let's tap into that for a minute, because oftentimes, Please, especially on a show entitled Harvesting Happiness, you know, we think we're going yeah. for the, the light work here. But let's get real with the challenging parts of life and how sort of happiness becomes yes. the lubricant, right, that goes yes. in between these things. Well put. That's exactly right. 
happiness is the thing, like I said, that we all want to feel, but it's so hard. It's so hard to capture. But I do find that in my experience, happiness and joy comes with purpose. And even if something isn't pleasant, there is actually joy to be had if you're getting some meaning out of it. When I was a when I was a kid and I had to get a shot, well, everybody knows what it's like to be a kid and to be terrified of shots. And that's the first story in my book. And, you know, I was, I walk into the office with my mom and out comes a nurse with a shot that I swear looks like a harpoon. <laughs> you know, it's like a bayonet. Yes. You know, those big Back glass in the day. Metal yeah, they used the to day, be. Right? Yes, it's true. That's right. They weren't little tiny little needles. This was, this was like a military weapon. Imagine, so like a to, horse needle, oh, right? <laughs> that's what it, I and when you're six years old, it's proportionally even bigger. So um, I start to fend her off with a barrage of questions. I start to ask this poor nurse, wait, don't give me a shot yet. What, what kind of shot is it? Wait, is it a tetanus? Is it a booster? How many cc's? And she looks at me and she says, David, you can ask me all the questions you want but you're going to get this shot. (laughs) So so in the moment, in the moment, it wasn't funny. In the moment, it was like, okay, just give me the shot. But Lisa, I've been laughing about that story for 60 years. I I enjoy sharing it. And people understand if you've got to do something that's unpleasant, just get it done. Just get the shot. Just get it. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of you as that six-year-old boy, though. And I'm thinking, wow, yeah. what a precocious kid. Like, you're, you're trying to yeah, negotiate your way uh, around this <laughs> shot. <laughs> That's right. I'm trying to talk my way out of it. Absolutely. And it was desperate. And she knew. She had me. Yeah. Um, but there is something about the, you could ask me all the questions you want, but you're going to get the shot. That's a metaphor. We can squirm if we got to make a phone call. We got to send an email. We have to deliver bad news. Just do it. Because the waiting, as I'm sure you know, Lisa, is frequently way worse than the event. Way worse. Well, I want to go a little bit more deeper, more serious, and more personal. Because uh, you and I have have a shared experience about a year or so ago of our hometown being on fire. Yeah. Yep. And what a moment where these little life lessons can be put into action. And I'm wondering what Definitely. that was like for you. Yeah. Well, I teach in the, in the Malibu campus. I live in Santa Monica. So I wasn't directly exposed to it, but half the faculty I know were directly affected. A lot of my patients had to evacuate. The lessons that I learned by hearing their stories and by me surveying the landscape was twofold. One is it brings people closer together. I know it sounds trite. I know it sounds cliched, but neighbors began talking to neighbors in a way they didn't before. So, and that happens in grief too. When somebody passes away, it's an opportunity to get closer to family members or friends. I'm not saying somebody dying is a good thing, but it's an opportunity to see something positive in it. And the other lesson for me through all these miserable fires is gratitude. Be grateful for what you've got. You know, you might've lost things, but you have things and it's easy as human beings, to turn to the negative. But I tell my clients and students, you've got to take an inventory, sometimes daily, for what you've got. You know, I'll tell you a brief anecdote. You know, sometimes I'll be seeing a patient and they're having a really, really, really miserable time in their life. And they'll sort of laughingly say, well, at least it couldn't be worse. 
And I say to them, don't ever say that. Yes, don't give don't yourself ever the say, hex. Right, <laughs> right. It could always be worse. And they don't take it as negative. They see light in that statement, which is like, well, you know, you're right. It could be worse, and it isn't. Because the odd thing is, and I'm going to sound kind of, you know, zenish about this, but I'm in California. What am I supposed to say? Um, in any given moment, for almost all of us, nothing bad is actually happening. In any given moment, I have stuff on my mind about my kids right now and about teaching. and this, But right now, Lisa, it's just you and I talking. Nothing bad is going on. And it's perfect. And It's yes, a perfect and it's moment. It's hard to do, but it's, it's a perfect moment. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I couldn't be, this couldn't be more meaningful. And it's giving me joy to share this with you. I feel the same way. And this is, I think, the secret sauce that I hope to share each week on the show, that we hope to share your patients, my clients, that the present yes. moment is 99.9 tenths percent okay, if not good or yes. great. That's right. That's right. I couldn't agree more because when we get distressed, if we're depressed, this is going to sound a bit simplistic, but I found it to be true. If we're depressed, it's, it's about the past. If we're anxious, it's about the future, almost by definition. But in the moment, in the moment, most of the time, all there is, is the here and now. And almost all the time, nothing bad is happening to you. Now, if there's a tiger in your tent, even then, it hasn't eaten you yet. <laughs> no, if he's eating you, yes, get anxious. Okay, get out. But, <laughs> but when the tiger's in, in general, the tent, the challenge becomes how can you dance with the tiger, right? That's exactly right. How can I calm the tiger down? Or how can I get the hell out? Yeah. yeah. So some anxiety is adaptive, but honestly, most anxiety isn't adaptive because it makes us live in the future. Now, we need to have some futureness. We've got to pay our bills and get gas in the car. But you can't do that. Like right now, I need gas in my car. I can't fill my tank while I'm talking to you. So you, I let it go. Are you I'll one of those? Are you one of those that rides it down to oh. the red light? Oh, I hate to admit it, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> are you? No, no, oh. no, because I pay attention yeah. to what the Red Cross says in California. Keep that tank full so you can get out. <laughs> well, that's so true. That is, that is wisdom. And my problem is, you know, there's a diagnosis called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Yep. Now, that's, that's not the same thing as OCD. I don't wash my hands ritualistically or turn the ketchup bottles, but I do need things to be organized and comprehensive. I need my frames at 90 degrees. I have a story in my book about this idea. And what I find is like, I want the tank full, but I'm trying to squeeze in way too much in that day. <laughs> so when I can pare back, the tank gets full. When I don't, I'm redlining it. Very, very funny. In your book, Life is a Four-Letter Word, you talk about silly decisions and mistakes that you've made that have helped oh, really yeah. create the book. And I would love for you to and share how. some of that. Yes. Oh, I'd love to. I mean, several uh, little essays come to mind. And again, in the book, each of these essays is like a page or two long. When I write, I, I consider it guerrilla writing. I don't mean like an ape. I mean like guerrilla warfare where you get in, you make the point, and you get out. So these are bite-sized things that I share with people and leave them with a life lesson. So one that comes to mind is I was, when I was 16 years old in high school, I was in a theater production. And at the end of the night, I would ferry all of the students home. Well, my father had a little old two-seat Fiat, but I would dutifully pack everybody in the car. I would carry five, six, seven people. 
They're hanging on the oh trunk. They're hanging on the hood. <laughs> and of course, of course, I got pulled over. And I went to court. My poor mother was embarrassed. And the judge was very kind. He said, you know, son, uh, we all make mistakes when you're young. I'll let you off with a warning. Oh, and lucky you. my mother you. was relieved. Yeah, well, the story's not done. <laughs> so we start to head for the exit. And my mother is relieved. But I was 16, Lisa. I was a teenager. I couldn't help it. I had to mouth off to the judge. I had to do it. So I said to the judge, excuse me, Your Honor. I, you know, I didn't realize there was a law against how many people you could carry in your car. And he looked at me and he said, but you know what, son? You knew it was wrong, didn't you? And it just froze me in my tracks. That's a silly mistake as a teenager that I've carried with me ever since. Yeah. There may be a rule. There may be a law. But people rationalize their behavior because most of the time we know if something's wrong, we know it and just try to follow that. What's right and wrong is an internal moral compass that not everybody has. Narcissists may not. Sociopaths don't. But oh. 99% of the people know that something's wrong when they're doing it. Oh, I want to come back to that. Let's take a break. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. David A. Levy. The book we're talking about today is Life is a Four-Letter Word, Laughing and Learning Through 40 Life lessons. To learn more about the good doctor, please visit www.davidlevypsych.com, on Twitter at David Levy Author, on Facebook at David Levy Author, and that is also the Instagram handle. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we are back talking with David Levy about life-changing lessons to live by, how to laugh and love your way to sustainable happiness. Let's get back to the conversation. David, in the last segment, we were talking about some wonderful stories uh, of your youth and what you've learned and how you impart that knowledge and wisdom to, to patients and readers. And you mentioned about narcissists and sociopaths. And although there yeah. are, there are only a few of them out there on the planet, they pack a wallop. And what can the they rest do. of us learn from them? Well, the story that comes to mind, I was working as a writer for a TV show many years ago, and I was in the waiting room and inside the producer's room, this was a famous producer in Hollywood, I heard him berating the director, and it was really uncomfortable. You're such an idiot. What's Ugh. the matter with you? You never do anything right. And I hear the director going, oh, you're right. I really am an idiot. And I'm just sick to my stomach over this thing. And I'm thinking this director has no self-esteem. And so I took him out to lunch the next day. And I go, how do you handle that? How do you handle him berating you? And he looks at me eating his French toast and he goes, I don't even listen. I go, what do you mean? He goes, what do I care what he thinks of me? And I thought, what are you talking about? He goes, look at, I keep my job. He's a narcissist. I'm not going to change him, but I want to keep my job. So the insight that I had is I thought this guy had no self-esteem, but in retrospect, he had really high self-esteem because he didn't let a narcissist get under his skin. It's so hard if you got a narcissistic boss or a husband or a wife, they get under your skin, they make you feel horrible. But yeah. with enough self-esteem, it buffers you against that kind of arrogance. We all deal with narcissists. So 
my advice generally is you're not going to change them. Protect yourself and remind yourself it isn't personal. They are so deeply insecure that they've got to spew it onto people around them. You know, what's interesting, what you just shared, I, I really appreciate that story. And I see the amusing side of dealing with a narcissist because they are predictable. You can predict yes. the conversation. <laughs> utterly, <laughs> utterly predictable. That's yes. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. If you flatter them, they will love you. If you criticize them in any way, they'll either get really mad or they'll shut down. As you say, Lisa, utterly predictable. Yeah. It, Pathetically it, predictable. And that's something that I have, I, I, I myself have learned over the years that when I go to that sort of, oh, okay, here it comes, here it comes, and it becomes yeah. a game, right? And it's amusing. Yeah. It allows me to cope with the person who most of the time I have to be in relationship with, right? There, there are people exactly that are close right. to me. That's right. That's right. I had a student years ago who I, I, I'm in my 60s now. Back then I was in my 30s, and he was in his 40s or 50s. Absolutely narcissistic, arrogant. And every week he was going on and on and on about how he'd done everything and he knows more than everybody. And the students are just going crazy. They're calling me, you know, Dr. Dave, you got to shut this guy up. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I'm in my 30s. What do I know? <laughs> so the next week he starts to blabber and he uses the word narcissism. And I said to him, you know, let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever thought that maybe you're narcissistic? And the no. class looked at me like, are you out of your mind? You said that and to him? Well, I did it in a, I had to, I mean, the students were looking to me to, you know, step up and do something. So he looks at me and rather than getting angry, because narcissists can get rageful when they're offended, he gets this Cheshire cat smirk on his face and he goes, oh yeah, I thought of that, but I'm not narcissistic. And I go, really? What makes you say that? And he goes, I've got way too much empathy. And I thought, that's the most narcissistic thing I've ever heard in my life. This guy, first of all, felt like he beat me in front of the class. Second, he not only has empathy. Lisa, check this out. He's got too much empathy. That's how perfect this guy is. Oh, wow. I have too much empathy. Well, that's not exactly a you know, high-functioning person. Wow. The students, students were relieved that I at least brought it up. And really what I find, back to your question, when I teach or I'm a therapist, if you can't help the narcissist, you can help people around the narcissist. So the students were relieved that at least it got said, he's not going to change, but they learned a lesson by seeing narcissism in its full-blown color. And while we're bashing narcissists, I think we also yes, have to, 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 do, to, to say something on the other side of the coin about them. Is that, that They're it, insecure. They're yes. deeply insecure. But the narcissistic qualities are what propel and inspire some of these people to their greatness. That's exactly right. You know, you can't, let's say you're an NBA basketball player because, you know, I'm not. I'm 65, short, and Jewish. So the odds are zero <laughs> <They're, yeah. laughs> that I will ever play in the NBA. <laughs> your architecture and your age are working against you. That's <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> oh, everything. Skin color, everything, everything. Yeah. No chance. Um, but if you're really, really good, and maybe there are some exceptions, but in general, and this applies to any sport or being a CEO, you can't step on the court and compete unless you have a really, really, really high opinion of yourself. Yeah. So in those contexts, I think what you're saying is it serves you well. It gets you to the top of an organization or you get the movie done or you win the game. The problem is people typically generalize that to their personal relationships. And then it almost never works. They're not the same 
not the same rules. I, I was working with a couple. They were both lawyers. And you can imagine what that session is like. They're both turning to me to render a judgment as to which one is right or wrong because they thought it was about winning and it isn't about winning. Uh, I have a story in the book called The Challenge. When I was about eight years old, there was a traveling exhibit of a computer. Well, that was a big deal in the early 1960s. And there was a sign that said, beat the computer at tic-tac-toe. And I thought, I can do this. How hard can it be? Well, guess what? So I'm playing the computer. And of course, you know, I, I lose the first game and I tie the second game and then I lose, tie, tie, lose. But of course, I never won. Well, here's the meaning from that. After a while, Lisa, a tie felt like a win because there was no win. There's no way to beat a computer. If you lose, you lose. If you tie, you win. So I found in personal relationships, go for the tie. Don't go for the win. Because if you think you've won with your spouse, trust me, you haven't won. You haven't won. <laughs> It'll come back and bite you. That's and true. if they think they've won, they haven't won. If you go for the tie where you both feel equally satisfied or unsatisfied, that's the win. So to me, with maybe not in sports, but in personal relationship, a tie is a win. That's the win. And ultimately, when we're talking about laughing and learning through life, you know, um, yes. and your book, Life is a Four-Letter Word, I have to plug the title which, there. Which it is. <laughs> yes, Thank you very much. It is. And it is yes. a four-letter yes. word. It is a yes. four-letter word. But when we're going through this, I think that recognition that that the tie is really an okay place to be, that it doesn't always have to be the win. If we, you know, many years right. ago, I had a therapist, my own therapist, who said to me, look, do you want to be right uh -huh. or do you want to be happy? Well, the younger me that would have said exactly both, right? right? The, I want to be right. 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 The, or both. But yeah. the older the older yeah. me says, you know, I just want to be happy. It's like, you know what? Let, uh, yeah, that's let, right. Let that shit go. <laughs> and, if you're, and if you're happy, the odds are your partner will be happy. Yes. And if your partner is happy, you'll be happy. So to me, the tie is not just okay. A tie is a victory. Yeah. If you can emerge from that conflict with somebody you love and you, it's a tie – Please be proud of yourself and be proud of your friend or your partner because you both collaborated. You reached some kind of compromise. You know, in terms of, of laughing at this stuff, because we have to, otherwise we'll go crazy. Um, I, I have an essay in the book that I call Lying or Crazy. And what this is about is it's hard for us to believe that other people really do see things differently than us. They're not just trying to like get at you, although sometimes they might be. They really see things differently. The example that I use is, you know, is oysters. Now, if I cover an oyster with Tabasco and horseradish and lemon, yeah, I can, it's okay. But I would never, ever, ever, ever eat a, just a cold, gray, slimy elephant loogie with nothing on it. Agree. It makes me sick. Hard no. Okay, but <laughs> there are hard no, but there are people who really like them. Yeah. Unadorned. And that's hard for me to accept. But that's only because it's my experience. So whether it's oysters or there's a type of music called free jazz, I don't mean improvisation. I mean where it just sounds like a cacophony of nothing. <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> yes, yes. Wee, 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 wee. You know, that kind of stuff. But there are people who love it. And our inclination is to say, no, you don't. You can't really love it. But they do. So we translate that into relationships. Your partner really might like a different movie than you do. Don't take it as a threat. We take those things. What do you mean you're not eating meat? What do you mean you don't want kids? 
What it means is they don't want to eat meat. It's not about you. It's their values. So we take things as a threat when people are different frequently. Yes. Oh, what a, what a great life learning there. There is a huge nugget. When, when we're in a, in a state of disagreement with somebody, yes. that it is right. not Don't personal. It. Yeah. It's not. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not personal. Most of the time it's not. We are nearly out of time. And I wanted to touch okay. upon the... But I'm having... But I'm so happy right now. Uh, You're going to take that away? No, no. No, I'm not going to take it away. away I know. I'm not. I'll just invite you to come back and hang out again. So, you know, that our our moments for now are almost done, but it's not over. Yeah. Fantastic. I wanted to ask you about faking it till you make it in sort of the the kernel of truth before we sign off. Are you a believer? Well, we almost all struggle from what we call the imposter syndrome. Almost all of us. That is the feeling that, oh, my God, I've, I've been able to fool people up to this point, and I'm going to get discovered. Whether it's at school or whether it's at work or on a first date, they're going to find out that I'm really worthless. And in my own practice, I work with CEOs and attorneys, people who by any measure are successful, but they struggle with the imposter syndrome, too. It's sometimes in more ways than that. So the advice I give to people when they're starting out, new school, new job, on a date, Just in your head, ask yourself, if I weren't so insecure, how might I be acting? And that little nugget for them goes, okay, I can do that for a day or a week or a month. And over time, they get better at it. Now, if you're totally ill-equipped for something, it's time to get a, a different date or a different job or maybe transfer classes. But in general, take it. You'll be okay. It doesn't mean be a liar. But think about how you would be behaving as if. It's from my old acting days. Yes. Act as if Act you weren't insecure. Yep. As if. That's it. Those That's were the it. words Act that came if. to my mind as you're speaking. And, and it's not about the lie. It's about raising no. yourself into that place of being it. It's about growth. That's yeah. exactly right. Such good fun. And I've been talking with Dr. David A. Levy. He is an award-winning professor of psychology at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, The book is Life is a Four-Letter Word, Laughing and Learning Through 40 Life Lessons. To learn more about The Good Doctor, please visit www.davidlevypsych.com, on Twitter at David Levy Author, and on Facebook as well as Instagram, David Levy Author. You have been an absolute joy and made my day. Thank you so much. As have you. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about life-changing lessons to live by, how to laugh and love your way to sustainable happiness. My next guest is a personal favorite, and that is Tal Ben-Shahar. He is the author of several books, and he is a world-renowned expert in positive psychology. But most recently, his newest book, and to me, probably the most precious gem, is Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber. He's in the house, and I want to bring him on immediately so we can get into the conversation. Tal, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's it's a pleasure. Let's talk about some official stats because people do like stats. According to Gallup's new 2018 Global Emotions Report, a survey has been done that the emotional lives of more than 150,000 adults in over 145 countries are experiencing higher levels of worry, sadness, stress, anger, and pain showing that they've hit the highest level since Gallup began measuring the data more than 10 years ago. Yeah, this is, I must say, scary results. And uh, it uh, comes along with other results that we've received. For example, uh, this is by Jean Twenge, who's a professor at uh, UC San Diego. And what she found was that uh, among teenagers, uh, over the last five years, levels of depression have gone up by over 30% and suicide uh, has gone up by over 30%. So um, these are scary results and we're seeing it all over. We're seeing it in uh, North America, in Latin America. Uh, we're seeing it in Europe, Asia and, and Africa. And what's interesting about that is when you we look at happiness in America, that Americans are not scoring so hot. Yeah, so I just recently um, uh, conducted research in uh, in Latin America, which uh, historically has been scoring um, very well on the uh, on, on the happiness scale. And what we found was that uh, uh, indeed Latin America is still the happiest region in the world. However, this was this is a big however. The um, when we broke it down into age groups, we found that the younger generation in Latin America, that is ages uh, 18 to 34, um, they were as happy or rather as unhappy as their North American neighbors, uh, as well as the Europeans. So the, the happiness of that region was essentially uh, carried by the older generation. And here lies a very um, interesting insight, and that is that the difference between the younger and the older generation was relationships. Specifically, mm. the older generation enjoyed real relationships. The younger generation, while they valued relationships, they had turned to the virtual uh, over the real. And unfortunately, you know, 1,000 friends on social media are no substitute for that one face-to-face -face best friend. Which leads us to the conversation about your barber, Avi, who I have fallen in love with by reading the book. <laughs> Avi There's the, a lot to fall in love with. Yes, Avi, Avi the guru. <laughs> Talk a little bit about Shortcuts to Happiness. What yeah, inspired yeah. you to write this book? Yeah, so, you know, so, so my, my general understanding of, of happiness, and again, I'm not alone here, of course, is that it's a lifelong journey. You know, it's yeah. a journey towards happiness ends when essentially when life ends, at least as far as we know. And um, so I'm always learning. I'm always reading. Uh, I always, you know, take courses online, offline. And then um, one day I, I was uh, just between flights. So after a flight and before a flight, I was stressed. I was, I was not feeling great, uh, but I needed a haircut. So I went to my to my barber, to, to Avi's salon. And I came out 20 minutes later with a, with a great haircut and in a, in a great mood. And the great mood was not because of the great haircut. It was because of the conversation we had. And I said to myself, you know, I get so much out of uh, my time with Avi. Um, he has so much wisdom that he, that he shares with, with so many people. I have to write about him. So that day 
And for the next two years, exactly two years on the day, uh, I wrote about him. And every time um, I went in, uh, he didn't know this, but I was taking notes and then went home and, and reflected on what on, on his wisdom. And uh, I must say that the two years were, were an incredible experience for me. And writing that book was a different experience from writing any other book. Because when I write, I'm, I'm, I'm very serious and, and even grave and you know, no one can talk to me. Whereas, whereas when I wrote uh, Shortcuts to Happiness about Avi, I, I couldn't stop smiling. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was a fun experience uh, for me to go through. And Avi is a gem, right? Out of Avi's mouth pours these very simplistic insights into the human condition. Yeah, you know, very simple, accessible wisdom. And, um, but you know, don't let his, uh, you know, simplicity fool you because behind it, there is a, a, a lot of, uh, depth. You know, there's a, a quote which is, uh, attributed to Oliver Wel uh, Wendell Holmes. Not, not sure if he actually said this, but it's a beautiful quote, nevertheless, which is, um, for simplicity of this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. I would give nothing. For simplicity on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. Meaning, and, and, and I think what he's distinguishing between is, is simple, which is simplistic versus simple, which is, uh, which is, which relies on a, on a great, uh, a great deal of depth. And, uh, and Avi do, does just that. You know, he's, uh, he, he didn't graduate from high school and yet he has never stopped learning. He's reading, um, He's, uh, he's reflecting more than anything. He's talking to people, you know, mining their, uh, uh, their, uh, treasures of wisdom. And, uh, and he's able to synthesize uh, all that he's learned into these per simple, uh, pearls that he shares. When I look at the book and I look at your history, you know, you, uh, were a professor at Harvard. You've written several books. You come from a strong academic and research background. And here's Avi, the barber, who has become a good friend. And the style is so different from your <laughs> usual format. And yet it still transmits the golden nuggets of really the worthiness of happiness right where we are. Yeah. You know, so. All my other writing uh, very heavily relies on, on, on research. And, and in many ways, it also, um, has the, the research voice, you know, that serious academic, uh, course. And what I encountered with, with Avi, he's, he's, um, yes, he's very wise and, and he's, he's very playful and he's very open and he's easygoing and, and beyond the, the words that he uttered, how he uttered them, you know, not just the what, the how. Uh, provided a very important lesson. I mean, provides a very important lesson because, you know, I'm not the only one benefiting from his, uh, from his wise words and his wise behavior. Oh. You know, es essentially what he's saying is, you know, life is short. Let, you know, let's have fun. But, you know, having fun doesn't mean uh, that we can't be, uh, wise and deep at the same time. And what's so interesting about Avi the barber being sort of the, uh, the invisible co-author here is, that most of us entrust our hairdresser or <laughs> our barber with our confidences. They are our armchair psychologists, mm. you know, and we leave that shop feeling better mentally and spiritually and physically. Yeah. You know, and, and think, think about just the situation of being in that, in that, in that scene. First of all, I don't think it's a coincidence that Freud basically uh, prescribed this kind of uh, sitting arrangement 
uh, in therapy. Um, but, but beyond that, you know, you're sitting down, you're usually not on your phone. So you are, uh, attentive, you're present. Um, someone is, uh, you know, physically, um, intimate with you, you know, they're, they're, they're touching you. There is this, this, this close connection. Um, they're there to help you to make you look, you know, prettier, more beautiful or whatever. So it has so many, just even before you open your mouth, it has so many of the elements of a, of a healthy uh, relationship and a healthy relationship, especially today, because today so many relationships have lost the, the touch yeah. literally, and they have lost the, um, the direct connection because they're conducted virtually. And, and two more things come to mind. There's the metaphor of sort of trimming the excess, you know, that comes from a haircut mm. And then also the unconditional positive regard that the barber or hairdresser is holding for us. That, I love that. Yes. Yeah. So it's the, so uh, Carl Rogers talked about the importance of, uh, of unconditional self-regard as the foundation of, uh, of a therapeutic relationship. And in fact, there was research that came out years after Carl Rogers. This was in the uh, late 90s um, that looked at the impact, the effectiveness of uh, of therapy. And what it found was that actually the kind of therapy didn't matter much to effectiveness. You know, it could be transpersonal. It could be, uh, uh, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic. It could be cognitive. Uh, the kind didn't really matter. Neither did number of years that the therapist spent studying. What did matter was empathy. Yeah. Uh, that unconditional, uh, uh, acceptance, um, that exists between them. And, and, um, and yeah, I think this is one of the, uh, um, I don't know if it's inherent in every uh, relationship with a barber, but, but, but certainly in, in many, and many people have, have contacted me after and said, wow, you know, I, I, I have the same experience with my barber. Uh, other people said to me, you know, I have, uh, uh, similar experiences when I, when I take a tax, a cab, a taxi, and I have, uh, conversations and, and I learn so much. Yeah. So wisdom is out there. We just need to be open to it. And I think that's the beauty of the book, Shortcuts to Happiness. You are inspiring us to look right where we are for the moments, you know, those precious moments of contentment. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think this is, was also a very important lesson for me. As I said, you know, I, I had looked for, for wisdom in, in, in the, you know, the usual suspect, <laughs> meaning uh, academic yes. journals, you know, great, great books. Uh, and I still do. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reader and, 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 and I, and I do research and I, and I, and, and, and this is all important. And, and there is also a lot to be learned from, uh, um, from, from the people around us and, uh, from ourselves, you know, so change from research to me search is, is important to time to reflect. And, and Avi was, was big on reflection is big on it. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Tal Ben-Shahar about his newest book, Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber. I want to hear more about Avi as well. To connect with Tal, please go to his website, talbenshahar.com. On Twitter, he's at Tal Ben-Shahar, and on Facebook, it's Tal-Ben-Shahar. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, 
IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we are talking about life-changing lessons to live by, how to laugh and love your way to sustainable happiness. Let's return to the conversation with my guest, Tal Ben-Shahar. So Tal, prior to the break, we were talking about the goodness and the secret sauce of connection that makes this book so appealing to many, the simplicity of it. Talk a little bit about how we can boost our mood and the quality of our life without having to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so in many ways, the first uh, step to bringing in more happiness to our life is allowing in unhappiness. Um, especially today with um, with social media, but 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 not only. Um, we have a sense that to lead a happy life, we need to be happy all the time because everyone else is. You know, everyone is on their perfect vacation. <laughs> uh, right. Know, every, yeah, everyone, you know, perfect smile, perfect family, but except for us. And then we feel like there is something wrong with us. Well, in fact, there is something wrong with us if we don't at times experience painful emotions. Uh, you know, I always say that there are two kinds of people who don't experience painful emotions, such as sadness or anger or hurt or disappointment or anxiety or envy. Two kinds of people who don't experience these emotions. First, there are the psychopaths and second, dead people. So yeah. if we experience painful emotions, it's actually a good sign. I mean, you know, we're not psychopaths and we're alive. Um, and the, the problem is that when we reject painful emotions, they intensify. Whereas when we allow in painful emotions, when we allow in unhappiness, um, they just go away as they came. And not only that, we also open ourselves up to, to the pleasures, to the joys uh, of life. So first, allowing in unhappiness is critical. I think this is a really important talking point because people will often say to me, oh, you study and preach positive psychology and happiness. This is kind of BS because it's impossible to be happy all the time. And I love that you come back to this ability to feel unhappiness, the willingness to confront it, to step into it and recognize its impermanence. Yes, uh, exactly. And, and it's key. And just as, uh, as people come to you, they, they also come to me and, um, with this misunderstanding, which is why <laughs> I think it's so important to, to, to emphasize it. You know, what is a happy life? It's a, it's a full and fulfilling life. Yeah. And, that, and that includes every, every emotion. The willingness to experience all of it, the gamut of the human experience. It's not selective. 
Yes, uh, the willingness and, 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 and then to even go a step further and, and embrace it. Uh, and, you know, you can embrace it uh, with some humor and say, you know, I'm glad I'm not a, a psychopath and, and I'm alive. Um, or embrace it and just experience it and, and, and cry. And, and yes, it hurts. Write about it. Talk about it. Um, this is a, a prerequisite for, uh, for overcoming it as well as for um, then experiencing a pleasurable set of emotions. Ave talks about the need for reflection to look inside ourselves. And I would love for you to read a passage from Shortcuts to Happiness that talks about this. Oh, well, thank, thank you for asking. So, you know, um, yes, when, when Avi and I spent time together, you know, we would uh, talk a lot. However, I think one of um, the things I learned most from Avi was not just to talk, but also to be silent. Um, so this emphasis on looking inside on, once again, me search rather than research so I, I want to read you the um, the shortest chapter of the of the book, um, and it's a chapter on silence. Sometimes we were silent. The sounds of the scissors cutting through hair and air, the monotonous buzz of the shaver evening the field with inhuman precision, the sharp razor's crackling sound in competent, careful hands, leaving smooth skin in its wake. Much beauty resides in emptiness. Much growth emerges from silence. Mm. And there it is. You know, it, uh, it reminds me of um, Mozart, who uh, reportedly said that um, the silence between the notes uh, is the most important part of a, of a composition, of a piece. Uh, there's a lot in silence. And many of us are afraid of the silence. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you know, there's um, one of my favorite books growing up was uh, Lila by Robert M. Piercig. He's the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle. Yes. <laughs> and uh, in Lila, which is uh, his less uh, known book, uh, unfortunately, because it's, it's wonderful, uh, he talks about the difference between the European slash Western culture and uh, the Native American culture. And he said one of the major differences is our um, understanding and approach towards silence. Whereas we feel uncomfortable in the absence of words, um, we think um, that something is wrong when, when, when people, couple, friends don't talk. Uh, they embrace silence and sometimes they would sit around the fire, the, the, the fire and for two hours, just be silent. You know, once in a while, look at each other, acknowledge each other, but uh, look within um, for these two hours. And they felt f perfectly comfortable with that. And, and, and I think we need to become more comfortable with silence as well. Well, in the silence, we hopefully get to know ourselves. We, um, we get to know ourselves and beyond. Yes. Uh, Ma Abraham Maslow once said, uh, he who looks into the depth of his own mind of his own mind has looked into the depth of all minds. And, um, there is truth to that because we look into our nature, into our universal nature, and we learn about others. Which goes back to relationships. 
you know, having uh, good connected social relationships, you emphasize is a number one predictor of our happiness. And the research supports this. Yeah, the happiest uh, people in the world. You know, th- this, this is wonderful research. Uh, it came, came out of Harvard over a period of 75 years. The researchers, and it was uh, uh, multiple researchers, of course, looked at a, at a group of Harvard graduates and community members over a period of 75 years. So for most of them, because it started at the age of 18, it was for their entire lives. And um, they looked at literally millions of data points. And what they found was that the number one predictor of both happiness as well as health, number one predictor was relationships. And the interesting thing was that it didn't matter what relationship. So it could be a romantic relationship. So it could be family. It could be friends. It could be professional relationships. But having intimate, close, real, not virtual, real relationships, number one predictor of both health and happiness. Yeah. And this is what is so powerful about Avi's wealth in this area. I mean, he's a rich man, in my view. Uh, he's a he's a very wealthy man, and he, in fact, you know, many people come to him because he really is a, a great barber as well. And many people have come to him and said, you know, why don't you grow your business? You know, have you know, um, have other uh, salons elsewhere. And he said, you know, I don't need to. I have everything that that that, that I need and want here, uh, and everything that I need and want. Yes, of course, he's making a living, which which is important. Um, beyond that, though, he's also. Uh, interacting with people. He's, uh, he's constantly learning and constantly teaching. He has what he wants for, for his happiness. Yeah. Which is a lesson for us all. There were a couple of other stories or chapters that stood out to me about Avi's vacation, <laughs> which mm-hmm. made me, which made me smile. Would you be willing to share a little bit about it? Sure. Whenever I went to his salon, I always felt like I was on vacation. And the reason was because what do you do when you're on vacation? You know, you, 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 you leisurely, you know, sip your coffee, uh, rather than on the run. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a nice, uh, nice place, nice location, uh, good, good, uh, you know, not good food and, and good smell. And this is what the experience was in his salon. So we would sip our coffee leisurely and then, um, you know, there'd be nice flowers, uh, there all the time. And, uh, and, we, um, and, and we talked and we chatted and, and in today's culture, so when we're on vacation, that's when we have time to really, really talk. Well, I did it on a regular basis, uh, in, in, in his salon. Now this made me think about the, the research today on stress, because in today, today's world, stress is, uh, is a huge issue. You know, when companies call, uh, me today, the number one reason they call me for consulting or lecturing is because of the rising stress levels in the organization. What they don't understand is, and this is what I talk about a lot, is that stress in and of itself is actually not a problem. Um, that stress potentially is good for you. You know, just like you go to the gym, you stress your muscles. The yes, problem yes. is the lack of recovery. And if you recover when you're mus- after stressing your muscles, you'll get stronger and healthier. If you have periods of recovery in your life, Despite or alongside all the stress, you'll become healthier and happier. And being on vacation, recovery was what uh, was what uh, what a, um, an experience in, uh, at, on the, at the barber. 
can be all about. In the book, Avi talks about wanting to go to Thailand, but <laughs> he's he's not able to go because of commitments. So he brings Thailand to him. In the <laughs> that's right, he brings the fla- you know flowers that uh, originate in Thailand. Yes, and, and he puts you know Thai music on. He's great. We we are nearly out of time, and I I just highly recommend this book. And I think you know one of the things I really really appreciate about what you've written, Tal, is that. You come at this from being a pioneer in, in positive psychology, but what resonates is your humanity. I mean, you're seeking the same things that everybody else is seeking, which is that, that pause, that connection, that presence in, of occupying one's life. And it really comes through in the book, Shortcuts to Happiness, Life Changing Lessons from My Barber. And I love Avi. <laughs> I don't know Avi, but I love him. Yes. And, and the thing about him, the more you get to know him, the more you will love him. <laughs> well, maybe we have to have Avi come on with you. Come back and talk more about all this wisdom and we'll get the, the guru with the scissors to join us. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> it would be. To learn more about Tal's work, please visit TalBenShahar.com. On Twitter, he can be found at TalBenShahar. And on Facebook, it's Tal-Ben-Shahar. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing yourself through this book and your time with us on Harvesting Happiness. Well, thank you. And thank you for all the work that you do. Ah, that's what I get to do. (laughs) (laughs) Here comes the break. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. David Levy and Tal Ben-Shahar, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.